The Way Out Podcast, episode 127. I, I just drank it, and uh, all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I felt at ease in my own skin. Right. And I felt like this is what other people feel like when they walk around smiling and talking and making friends. And this is what everyone feels like. Like, why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> I was... Finally, finally, your insides when you drank felt like what the outsides of other people looked like. Yeah, exactly. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of the Way Out Podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow the Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Have a question or comment about an upcoming or previous show? Call us right now. Area code 218-382-1960. Call us anytime, day or night, and leave us a message on whatever is on your mind. Maybe it's a previous episode topic or something that you're struggling with in your own recovery. Call us at 218-382-1960 and leave the Way Out podcast hosts a message and we could feature it on our next episode. That's 218-382-1960. Help us recover out loud. The Way Out podcast is on right now. Along with Jason, I'm Charlie, and this week... We've got a compelling interview with author Kristen Casey. Kristen is the author of Rock Monster, My Life with Joel Walsh, as well as an intimacy coach and a person in long-term recovery from addiction and alcoholism. Make no mistake, the hook of Kristen's book is Joe Walsh. Joe is an enigmatic character who commands a look-at-me, look-at-me kind of attention. And Kristen does a superb job of bringing Joe to life over the course of the story laid out in the pages of this remarkable memoir. More striking is the way in which Kristen's very identity becomes inextricably connected to Joe and the rise and fall of the relationship, a dynamic all too many of us can intimately relate with. The remarkably dark and desperately lonely place King Alcohol took Kristen after her identity was stripped from her as a result of the demise of their relationship is nothing short of horrifying. A true miracle, she's here with us today. The only part of Kristen's story more remarkable than her wild ride with Joe Walsh 
and the shocking events that followed is that of her extraordinary comeback powered by working the 12 steps, a good sponsor, and yes, being of service. We're suckers for a good old-fashioned comeback here at The Way Out Podcast, and Kristen's story doesn't disappoint. So listen up. Kristen, welcome to The Way Out Podcast. I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here with us on The Way Out Podcast. You know, you are, I just want you to know right now, Kristen, you are uh, breaking the seal uh, on the Way Out podcast dual interview. This is the first time yeah. that we have had two hosts interviewing a guest on the Way Out podcast. So uh, welcome, and uh, how do you feel about uh, breaking that seal? Uh, pretty special. I'm feeling pretty special. <laughs> I feel special, too, to lose my virginity with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you so that's fantastic. Why don't you, uh, Kristen, take some time uh, just to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience for those who don't, who may not uh, know of you already, uh, and there's plenty of that, but there may be a few folks that may not know of you already, so introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience, and then I really want to dig into uh, a few things, your story, right, uh, and uh, the book, so, uh, and the book, of course, is called Rock Monster, My Life with Joel Walsh. So you're on, Kristen. Uh, all right. So um, my name is Kristen Casey, and uh, I'm a writer and an intimacy coach in Austin, Texas. And I wrote Rock Monster. It's an addiction memoir, and it does take place uh, during the period of time that I lived with the rock legend uh, Joe Walsh from the band The Eagles. How much? And... We're going to talk about this more, Kristen, but again, this book has a big hook, and that big hook is Joe Walsh, but the, the, the book isn't about Joe. The book is about Kristen, and there's so much there when it comes to your own personal journey and your own personal story. So why don't you... Um, uh, give us a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now in terms of your story of addiction. You know, I mean, um, it it it, uh, it hits so many universal chords with those of us who struggle with alcoholism and addiction. And so, what was it like growing up for you in uh, uh, the town of Austin, Texas? Uh, and uh, and and tell us a little bit about that. And we'll get into your we'll get into your story a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, I grew up actually in San Diego. Um, you know, I was born in '67, and uh, my family was uh, well. There were seven of us. Eventually, I was the the middle of five. Um, but um, we had what you would call I mean, you know, a typical. Um, suburban family, you know, there was no physical abuse, there was no divorce. Um, uh, I was raised very Catholic, my family was very Catholic. Um, both of my parents were from, in fact, my dad is from your area. Um, but but I, the my family was, um, my parents' family was from like um, North Dakota and Minnesota, and they're Scandinavian mm -hmm. and German, and just really hardworking people. And, you know, they were pretty religious. And um, I always had a roof over my head and enough to eat and, and I had a good home, but I had a really difficult relationship with my mother. Um, my father worked a lot. He and I had a great relationship, actually. I mean, my father made me feel really loved and that he sort of, 
he delighted in all his children, but it was a very, you know, typical 60s family. My mom, my mom worked a lot. Uh, she was a nurse, so she had a high-stress job. She had five kids, four of us at a, at a pretty young age. I mean, I think she got married at 21. She was 25 when she had me. And they were starting kind of from scratch. Like, my dad was a milkman when I was born, I think, until I was around seven or eight. And then he got into real estate. And so, you know, they were just always really working hard and um, and to, kept us safe and all that. But I just grew up feeling very... Um, uh, insecure and sort of unloved and lost and confused. And uh, my earliest memories were basically of wondering why my mom didn't like me and what was wrong with me because mm -hmm. of that. And the truth is my mom was, you know, she um, had high standards from, from her family. She was a, you know, she was a hard worker. She wanted to be a good mom and she just had so much on her plate and depression runs in my family and she had it even back then. And so, um, you know, it wasn't about me, but when you're a kid, you don't really know that um, if you're, you know, if you're um, my mom had just, you know, she had a um, she could be hypercritical when she was under when she was stressed. And that's sort of the environment I grew up in. So um, I started drinking. My first drink was actually on a babysitting job when I was 14. I was babysitting for a, a, a young doctor and his um, I write about the, I opened the my that's right. story actually. Yeah. But, um, you know, I was, I was a, I think I was a freshman in high school or just about to become a freshman in high school. And, um, you know, it's a very insecure time. You know, you just want to, you want to be pretty and you want to, um, uh, fit in. And I didn't feel like I was, I was sort of a, I thought sort of a awkward looking skinny redhead and I didn't develop as quickly as the other girls. And I, um, yeah, I was just pretty insecure. And then I had um, this this doctor I was babysitting for when he came home, he poured me a shot of tequila. And he was, you know, I, I just thought, well, this is interesting. And uh, I, I just drank it. And uh, all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I felt at ease in my own skin. Right. And I felt like this is what other people feel like when they walk around smiling and talking and making friends. And this is what everyone feels like. Like, why didn't anyone tell me? I was, so finally, finally, your insides when you drank felt like what the outsides of other people looked like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was exactly uh, what I felt in that moment. And it's funny because many years later, when I would hear people say things like that in meetings, I just knew, oh, they, they get it too. I'm not the only one. But, you know, back then I felt like I was the only one. Everyone was on the inside. I was the only one on the outside and drinking put me on the inside. Yeah, I I could talk, I could interact, I could be sexy and witty and cool and friendly and all that and pretty, everything in that one drink. So so I started drinking just, I would sneak um, booze from the bars of the people I babysat for. You know, I'd just get a little Tupperware container and I'd, you know, sneak a couple ounces of rum at a time every few months or whatever. But when I was 15, my father, my, we went, my family went bankrupt. And so we moved from, we had been sort of moving up a little bit every five years. We got a slightly nicer house and a nicer neighborhood. And so we had a beautiful home with a pool and a boat. And um, I, you know, I'd made some friends and I'd kind of gotten into the punk scene around that time. But I also felt like I kind of fit in there. So I was, you know, at 15, slowly starting to feel like I had a tribe for the first time in my life. And then we lost everything. And overnight, we just up and had to move to this um you know, tiny little house in the panhandle of Amarillo. And it was really devastating and for my mother and myself, especially. And um, at that time, my drinking just ratcheted up 
Mm. To, um, instead of, you know, at, at a little bit at the high school dances, whatever, every few months to every weekend, all weekend long. And that went on through high school. Right. So um, I, I graduated high school at 17 and moved away. To, um, I left the panhandle and went to Austin for college. And, uh, you know, everything just blew open really then. Right. Like that's a, it's such a classic story, but I, you know, I, I've been given a, I've been accepted at UT. Um, I wanted to be a screenwriter. I had no belief in myself. Um, I, I had a, I had a friend in Austin who had a really cool group of friends. Like he was locked into the coolest group of the punk scene, the pool, the coolest people in the punk scene. So I was, I was walking into the coolest city with a, with a, you know, sort of overnight, a cool tribe of friends. And yet I was so, I, I, I just had such low self-esteem and such self-doubt that I gravitated toward the more dangerous, edgy, drug-addicted segment of the punk scene. And, and really within a matter of weeks or probably, I was shooting speed within a couple of months probably of moving to Austin. And within another few months, I was full-blown uh, meth addict and I uh, had dropped out of UT and uh, I had just turned 18. And so my spiral, my speed spiral lasted like not even six months. The worst of it probably was three months, you know, but it, it was six months from end to end. But really, it was just only really bad for a few months. And then um, I spent all my scholarship money and grant money on, um, on drugs, dropped out of school. And then I kind of had this awakening where I thought, well, I got to, I'm going to blow it. I'm going to, I, you know, I, I, I could die. I, I've lost my friends. And I just... Uh, it sort of bounced back and I real quick got a job at a strip club because uh, I couldn't get a job anywhere else, like little restaurants or whatever. No, I just couldn't find anything. And um, I actually loved it. But the problem was I was 18 and I had access to alcohol every night of the week right. and, and nobody was stopping me. Like my, the manager, I, they just let me sneak it. You know, they just let me sort of, as long as I didn't drink out in the open, I could get drunk every night. And I did. So what I did was I quit speed, but I just traded it for alcohol and which was my first love to begin with. And I, and so I, instead of just um, drinking a lot or getting drunk on occasion, I was working five nights a week or so. And I was drinking eight hours, you know, the whole time I was there and it was, but it was normalized. I mean, this is also a real pattern with my story is that it, that it's very normal. You know, um, I was, I was always in some segment, some group of people where everyone was doing it. Like when I was shooting speed, so were all the punks I, w I was hanging out with. And when I was drinking all day or all night, every night um, at the club, I was drinking more than most of the girls, but everyone in the club was drinking. And, um, and then later, of course, when I end up in the rock and roll scene and I'm doing Coke, you know, every day and, and, and three day binges all the time. So was everyone else. So it was just normalized. I, I kept, I, I kept deluding myself that I was never really an addict because of that. Um, so, yeah, that went on for um, a few years, but I, I did decide I, I was feeling very restless about two years of um, stripping. Like I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to make something of my life. I wanted to be a writer. It was really important to me. And so I just sort of started trying to believe in myself more and eventually got back to school. And uh, right around that time is when I met Joe. So tell and, me, we're going to pause for a second because a couple of things. What attracted you, Kristen, about the strip club scene and uh, becoming a stripper because obviously the money was there, right? And there, there was sort of, sort of like a perfect storm of uh, there's not anything else coming up right now. 
and this becomes available. But what called to, and why did you why did you keep doing it? Right? Um, what was it about that? Was there a uh, was there some uh, power? Was there some intoxication that you derived from that experience every time that you were up on that stage? What was it about stripping that re- that that kept you coming back? Oh, there was so much to love about. <laughs> yeah, you really, you really d- dug into this in the book, and I, 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 it struck some nerves with me because I got a lot of friends. But I'll let you tell the audience. Yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing it up actually because I think it's an important part of my story. And I, so, I, what I want to say first of all is I don't, um, I'm well aware because at, at this point in my in my past, to, all, all told, I have 14 years as a stripper. I, I did it in three segments throughout my life, and um, I even did it in my up to my early 40s. I don't. I think that it's uh, let's say it's not what you do; it's how you do it. However, it's really a fraught profession. I mean, you have to really be on point to be doing it in such a way as that it's actually going to be empowering and not damaging. And it can be a little bit of both at times. And I, I I've done it in a way where it's been empowering and where it's been very damaging. Um, and so I would say that in the beginning, it was kind of a mix, you know, for me, it was for somebody who'd never really had control or, or, or felt empowered in any way in her life to have all that attention was really intoxicating. Mm-hmm. I will say, I think the first thing that I, that I really loved about it was that there was this sense of, um, sexuality as being celebrated and, at, and not shamed, which is something that I grew up with. And it was, you know, just in the, in a religious environment um uh i had a strong sexuality at a young age i mean a relatively young age once i got through puberty and i and and i had the sense that there was something uh shameful about that and that seemed intellectually to me to be very wrong but at the same time it sort of gets it permeates you and i enter this environment where where everybody was you know acting sexy and sexual and you know it's it's a commercial there's a the commercialization of it and and there's a lot of objectification but it's consensual so at 18 i didn't really understand all of this the scope of it but what i knew was that i was i was appreciated i felt validated i was allowed to be sexual and not shamed for it I felt um, I was, and what was most empowering, of course, was that I was earning a living. Mm-hmm. That I was, you know, I and um, it was in an environment that I was in, that I enjoyed. You know, and you were good and, at it, right? So it really fed, was, yeah. fed that self, <laughs> that your self esteem in terms of here's something that I'm good at. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and that's you know something in the book about when uh, that at that time basically like guys had to sit on their hands, like they weren't allowed to even. Yeah. So like, yeah, know, the, the good old days, control, <laughs> the good old right? days, right, right, right. Yeah. So it also occurs to me, if you were stripping into your early forties, you were officially the Tom Brady of, you know, strippers, right? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. only a few quarterbacks can play into their forties. Right. right. And only yeah. a few women can strip into their four. So you, yeah. you gotta be in an elite club there. You're blessed. Yeah. Yeah, I will say, you know, and I, I appreciated it on a whole different level, but my body uh, did not. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just really hard on my back to be wearing those shoes and to be contorting myself in those ways. Right. At yeah. Right. 100%. So then the, you also uh, made a, a statement that I, that I identify with, and I think m- m- most 
folks can identify with with their drug of choice, whether that be alcohol, whether that be whatever it is, right? We all have our first love, right? And alcohol was mine uh, very early on. Very, very, very similar story. That's what I love about this. I love about uh, being able to relate to another addict or another alcoholic is um, I get to hear my story and yours. And mm-hmm. when you utter the words, yeah, I did this and I did that and I did this, but alcohol was always my first love, right? Um, yeah. and, and, and I think anybody who is an addict and an alcoholic can identify with that, whether alcohol was her first love or whether it was math or was it, you know, whatever it was, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the weirdest things to me when I eventually did get sober was when I'd hear someone in a meeting say something like, um, you don't ever have to drink again if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I knew I couldn't. I knew that I, I was going to die if I did. But I'm thinking, why wouldn't you want to? <laughs> I used to be like, who would want to live a life like without drinking on, or doing on, drugs? On purpose. I mean, at yeah. least weed right. or, yeah, right. I mean, on something. On purpose, right. But who would want to do that on purpose? I really, exactly. I what resonates with me about what you were talking about, Kristen, is like that, that feeling of being less than and very insecure and um, just confused. You know, when I was a kid, same thing. And, and I found my solution as you did in the chemicals when I did them and, and it hooked me right away. And uh, knowing that I had all these issues going on and they didn't go away, but, I felt good, right? So now it was like, okay, and my inhibitions were lowered. And I mean, I I found the only people that responded in a way that I liked when I talked about it was these other broken individuals, right? And he's like, like you said, it was the punk scene with you. Well, with me, it was goth, goth kids, you know, early, you know, days of like the earlier 90s, like typo negative and right you know mm-hmm. all that kind of music this like really dark dreary the cure and i i yeah. used to just really i clicked with these people and yeah i mean it's just so similar even though it's different uh that i i just was like man i i could i know what that feels like you know what yeah I mean? here we go I like i'm i found the fix for this problem i have yeah, because, you know, we're kids, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're out there on our own. And, you know, my parents didn't give me the coping skills I needed to set me up with self-esteem and 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 uh, the courage to get through those, you know, college nerves or what. I had none of that. But the reason they didn't is because my parents didn't have them. And, they're, you know, right. they weren't passed down from my family. So, you know, when you're a teenager and you've got that kind of tension or dysfunction and complete lack of attunement with your parents, with at least one of your parents, which I did, you create your own family. You have to, we're tribe. I mean, humans are wired to to be part of a tribe, just like animals are, you know, like what happens to an animal when it gets ousted from the tribe, it dies. And and that's in our DNA. We know that too. So we find a tribe and that's our second family and we figure things out and what's, and uh, we, you know, when you think about the things that we do to, these weird coping skills like drinking um, every day or whatever, like at the time it sort of worked. It took away the pain. That's all I knew. Nothing else was working. No adults had ever taught me anything different. Um, So what else are you going to do? And, and you just figure 
this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. So it's this, this desperate yearning that we all have that's innate inside all of us to connect, to belong, to be accepted. Right. And I think, Kristen, mm -hmm. you express it so well in this book, this, this, this persistent need to be accepted and want to feel like you belong, like you have arrived at where you, at, you know, uh, and we all have that innate need, and uh, um, I substituted that need to connect to that to belong with drugs and alcohol. And when I drank alcohol, it was like I fucking arrived, you know. I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, this makes me feel better. No, I fucking arrived. Yeah, you know, like this is it. This is what it is all about. Like you people have no clue like <laughs> I said you know like you get to that place where you're like this is where I belong you know like this absolutely is, this is yeah. the life for me and I what I find funny is looking back like when I first started partying it was the drinking it was the smoking the weed and you know maybe drop some acid once in a while and I I hung with this core group of cool ass kids and we all had it made and then I kind of started to meet some other kids and I started to shoot up and mm -hmm and messing around with that. And then I started selling. Well, eventually my new habits alienated me from these other people who I was catching flack for hanging out with those people, you know, like you're fucking up dude. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. And like, eventually even those people were like, nope. And so then now I'm in this smaller circle of straight junkies, you know, and I mean, it, it's progressive, right? Just Absolutely. like recovery is progressive, Absolutely. which it's, thank yeah. God. Thank God it is. The more that we're intentional about this process, we can keep growing and uh, improving as well. So. Yeah, and you don't see it while you're in it, right? Like I had that right. same experience. I, I, um, I initially started hanging out with this group of punks who were doing speed. Some were addicts and some weren't. And then as I got worse and worse, you know, my niche got smaller and smaller. And at one point, like the toughest guy in that scene, who was the San Francisco skinhead, who was wanted for murder, I think, in California. I mean, he was really, he was telling me, you're overdoing it. Get out. Go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yep. And then you're thinking... So what there's the always fuck? those moments. <laughs> What's wrong with you, dude? Like, <laughs> Can't keep up. Right. I'd always. There's always those moments back. where you're looking at the person who's trying to call you out on your shit, and oh. you're like, "Are you are you serious? Yeah. You right. you are calling yeah. me out? Wow." Yeah. Right. Yeah, and the dagger's got to come out so we can protect <laughs> our habit. You know, like don't right. talk about me. Bro. You know, it occurs to me. You know, this was an occur. Uh, this occurred to me very very early in recovery. I had no idea other people didn't feel the way I felt when I drank or what I used, you know, like I, you know, it was often this, you know, uh, amazing experience. And as it progressed less and less amazing, of course, as it turned ugly and started turning on me. Right. But I had no idea, you know, that most people didn't feel this nirvana like orgasmic experience every time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, People just kind of feel good and then they, you know, get full. Right. You yeah. know, and I had no idea. Or once they start getting, woo, they're like, ooh, I better stop. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I this is out of control. Right, right. right. I thought oh, everybody right. felt like I felt and thought it was the greatest thing ever. Yeah, this is no. yeah. 
Not yeah, case. and there's that. There's always that sort of disconnect where there's the one party going, or you know, the person or group of people just. Why doesn't the the addict understand how crazy they're being? And the addict is like, why don't? Why doesn't everyone want to live like this right. you know, right. for well, a, a while? And then once you go off the deep end, it's so gradual. You just you really the thing about speed was it wasn't that gradual for me. I think that's the reason it was the one time I was able to quit kind of quickly is because I spiraled with speed so fast. I still had my wits about me and I could see how bad it was with, with drinking and cocaine. And even with crack, you know, it, it was more insidious and, and a slower um, spiral. And so, you know, you just become more and more delusional. You buy or you buy into that delusion more and more. And if you don't know the way out, if you can't see any way out, then why wouldn't you allow yourself to sink into that delusion that that um, what you're doing is is normal or or um, justifiable? So we don't want to give away the whole book, but we do want you to talk a little bit about some of the. I think more interesting pieces of the story that you weave as you talk about your time with Joe Walsh, who um, I think uh, is in his uh, heyday um, quite the character, quite eccentric, right? What attracted you to Joe? And in the first place, and uh, did that endure? And was that was when when you initially had that spark, that oh my god moment with Joe? You're in that hotel room, right? Is that's right? And you have that oh my god moment with Joe, and everything changes for you. Did that? In, what was that? Number one, and number two, did that endure? It did, actually. Um, to this day, I've never met anyone quite like Joe. And a lot of people who know him will, will say the same thing. He really is one of the rare, truly unique individuals. I mean, he's just, he's just, um, and a lot of women. But I mean, just people. I was talking to um, someone who played bass for him not long ago, George Reef, an Austin guy who, who, um, who actually passed away. But he was saying uh, the same thing as I did. He just said, I've never met anyone like Joe. And that's, I don't say that. I don't think I can say that about anybody. So with Joe and I too, it was also sort of a love at first sight thing or very close to it. But at the same time, I look back now and I see that in that 20 minutes or so that I was kind of watching him, we were introduced and I just kind of paid attention to him and got to know him a little bit. He exhibited a lot of traits that are the same traits that I know that I fall for in a lot of guys. I mean, I have a little bit of a, a, a type of chemistry with guys who are sort of playful um, and have a childlike wonderment about them. Cause I tend to be very, um, I can be very uh, motivated and driven and almost rigid in my pursuit of whatever it is I'm, I'm doing. And um, I've, when I was younger, you know, um, mostly because my mother just, it, it would drive her crazy, you know, to have just playfulness and silliness was, you know, with a house full of kids sometimes was a bit much. And so I sort of negated that side of myself and Joe had it in spades. And so we were, we sort of um, complimented each other that way. Um, but it, there was something about it that was almost storybook or fairy tale too. And uh, that lasted, I mean, I, um, sometimes I'll just, he'll pop up on TV or something or, and, and I'll have a flashback of those feelings I had when I first met him. 
Um, so we had a lot of chemistry, I guess, is one way to put it. Um, and I think the juxtaposition between how you grew up in this very straight-laced, religious, um, not a lot of time for your shenanigans, Kristen, kind of, yeah. right, environment, yeah. right? Mom's yeah. got a lot going on, right? We're just trying to keep, she's trying to keep it all together with five kids and, you know, um, um, right? So It's a stark contrast. Yeah, and, and, and so in the way that you describe how when Joe gave somebody, anybody, but in this case you, his full attention, right? It was pretty captivating. Yeah. I mean, he also embodied... Um, this success, this artistic success that I personally, that I wanted, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted to be a writer as much as I wanted to be in love and in a relationship. I mean, right. at the time, those things probably weighed equal to me, but I never really thought I'd be a writer, but I could be in a relationship. And here was a guy who was, you know, he wrote songs and he was a musician. So he was incredibly successful artistically. Right. And he was, um, uh, you know, he was really, sweet and and boyish and vulnerable and uh and playful and so all those things were lacking in my life as well and uh so he he had he was sort of the best of both worlds really all wrapped up in one well and then you got the party in and the yeah and everybody loves him you know like he's the life of the party and you got the the you know just like never-ending check right like the blank check yeah i mean it really was like a fairy tale and um the funny thing is, I mean, it. I had just started writing a couple short stories, maybe, and uh, I, I think I had written two by then, and I was back in school, and you would think, and Joe was actually really encouraging what, mm -hmm. while we were living together as far as trying to get me to write, but between the coke and the traveling and the partying, I was not somebody who ever could produce any, you know, right. like some people do cocaine and they actually can can produce they can write or what i was not one of them um so the uh it was just easier at at some point pretty quickly to i dropped out of school another two times so i could go travel with him and i finally just stopped going back um and uh even though i could have you can be a writer without a college degree for sure but um you know like i said by then i was using so much coke i couldn't produce anything and i just thought it was easier to to base my identity on the girlfriend of this rock star. I mean, I was in love. I had all my needs met. We had lived a glamorous life. I had his friends as my friends. I didn't even have to go out and make my own friends. You know, he came with a whole set of really awesome, interesting, fun, um, some famous friends. I had everything in one package. I had my whole life set up for me. And yet the whole time I was with him, I don't go into this a lot in the book, honestly, but I was never... I never could settle into it. I always knew on some level I wasn't fulfilling my destiny and mm. what, I, and I wasn't going for the life that I really wanted. Mm. I mean, if I wasn't an addict, I could have had him and a writing career, but I could, but <laughs> because of the Coke, I couldn't, that was, it was never going to happen. I so it's you. interesting that you say that because it's almost like, well, doing what I really, really want to do with my life is scary, and I don't know if I can do it, and I don't know if I have it in me, and I'm insecure as hell, and um, and I'm scared as hell uh, uh, to even really try, and if my life ends up being 
that I'm the girlfriend of this super huge rock star. Well, I guess that's not all that bad. Like, I guess, like, I guess it could be worse there, you know, that kind of almost, um, um, settling for this, um, uh, second prize. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that, um, I don't think I ever would have been happy with that. I think even if I wasn't an addict, I wouldn't have been happy with that. I would have just ended up growing up. I would have just become an angry woman, I think, right. or something, you know, right. um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, it was definitely a choice that I made, you know, somewhat unconscious, somewhat conscious now and then. I mean, um, and ultimately I loved him, but the funny thing was by the time we broke up, you know, I don't know how much in love with him I was. I, I, I needed him. I felt like my whole world, my whole identity was him. But um, so when we broke up, there was no sense of self left over at all. In the um, sequences that you write about in this book, Kristen, about how your relationship evolves with Joe from the beginning and the starstruck and the, and the, and, the, and being captivated by. Well, she didn't even know who he was in the beginning. Right. 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 With the song. Yeah. Right. But this enigmatic <laughs> character and you take this ride with this, uh, enigmatic mm. rock star mm. and the highs and the lows as you, weave through the sequences as the relationship is starting to deteriorate. <laughs> it is so good, Kristen. It is so good because I think everybody who's ever had a relationship end in a difficult way can identify with this heartbreaking notion that the relationship has changed forever. It's never going to be like it was. No matter how hard or how bad I want it to be like it was, it will never be. And the mournful process that we go through to try to pick up those pieces again and find out who we are again. Right? And so... Yeah. Wonderfully, wonderfully written. And anytime you can see yourself in somebody else's story, right, um, means that uh, you did a spectacular job. So I wanted to say, I wanted to say that, and I wanted to maybe have you talk about how you were able to, you know, write those sequences and bring that raw emotion and the reality of what it feels like to have a relationship end in that way. Oh yeah. Thanks. Then thanks for saying that, you know, as a writer um, to be told that uh, the story I told and the way I told it resonated um, personally with an, with any individual reader is to me just, it's the best thing about, about publishing the book. Honestly, that means the world to me. It's, you know, uh, my biggest fear was that, that I, I thought I had an interesting story. I was pretty sure that people would, I knew people were interested <laughs> in my story. Well, I, I hope was, so, right? <laughs> yeah, I was more worried that I was going to get 
that people are going to think, or I would get reviews that said, um, uh, interesting story, but you know, the writing is real amateurish or whatever. So I'm glad, I'm glad that I did a good job. And I think I want to circle back to this one word you said about, you said mournful. And the truth is it really is when it's over, when those, when the relationship is dying, it is a death of sorts and you end up in this place of sorrow and mourning and grieving because you know, there's, there's like a vacuum and there certainly was for me. Um, but what you had asked, I guess, was, um, how I was able to, you know, calling up those memories, um, and writing, it really was the most painful part of my life. And for many reasons, one, he was my, you know, he was the love of my life, at mm -hmm. least at this point. And, um, I was very fragile then. So the pain of a breakup is always, uh, I mean, it's never great, but when you're really fragile and, and um, I mean, like mentally fragile, I was mentally ill. And uh, so that breakup was really traumatizing to me and the events that followed it with the it, um, spiraling alcoholism and, and the suicidal years. In Las uh, Vegas. Yeah, exactly. You know, that that yeah. part of the book was insane. And we'll get to that. I want yeah. you to finish this. Yeah. So about that ending of the relationship, we're going to get to the Las yeah. Vegas for sure. This week's Recovery Revealed segment is brought to you by All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com. Would you like a medallion or coin from your favorite recovery program, hand forged into a beautiful ring? Go to allrecoveryrings.com and choose from over 15 stunning styles, all hand forged by expert craftsmen. What are you waiting for? Do like I did and get your very own recovery ring today. We'll be right back with the second half of our interview with Kristen as we pause for another rendition of Recovery Revealed, an opportunity to take a closer look at this life in recovery. It is not uncommon for a person in recovery from addiction or alcoholism to at some point need to address the codependency question. We may ask ourselves this question or we may simply wonder if we are or are in fact not codependent. There are three primary 12-step organizations that deal with codependent behavior patterns. Codependence Anonymous, CODA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, ACOA, and Al-Anon. Al-Anon and ACOA are centered more toward those who grew up or are living with someone with a drinking problem or addiction problem, and CODA is universally addressing codependency as a separate issue outside of a specific family member's alcoholism or addiction. CODA's literature is supremely valuable in helping you determine whether codependency exists within your behavior patterns. These patterns are broken down into five primary pattern groups, denial, low self-esteem, compliance, control, and avoidance. There are more than 50 patterns of behavior those whom are codependent often engage in, including having difficulty identifying emotions, denying emotions, difficulty making decisions, difficulty asking for things needed and wanted, hypervigilance about the feelings of others, accepting sexual attention when they really want love, and many more. If you have ever wondered at any time if codependent behavior patterns are ruling your life, you'll find an extremely useful link 
to a self-evaluation on the show notes of this episode. Recovery is a process and a journey, and many of us have or develop other addictions and unhealthy behavior patterns that at some point we need to address in order to remain happy, joyous, and free. Now back to the second half of our interview with Kristen Casey. Listen up. Don't forget, the way we get the message out to those who still suffer is to give this podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, so, you know, some of those memories, I think for, it's been 25 years, all told. I, Joe and I, our breakup was just about 25 years ago, the final one. And some of those memories, I think because they were traumatic, you know, knowing, um, especially in that final year when like there were days where I would storm out and I'm leaving him and I move into that hotel because I don't want to be away from him or he's throwing me out and putting me in that hotel because it's over for him. Mm. We went back and forth like on any given month of 1993, I guess it was, um, you know, it was him wanting it to be over and me begging him to stay and, or vice versa. But those memories were really strong and alive in me. And now that I've written them, I, I finally feel like their power has faded. But it was so, sort That's of a, awesome. it was cathartic writing it, but it was also a little <laughs> re-traumatizing it. Well, that's what we got to do, right? I mean, that's yeah. just like. It's processing, right. Just like recovery. It, until we go through it, we can't get over it. And. I think, you know, I applaud you for putting yourself out there. Nobody could ever say that you didn't, you know, that your writing was amateurish. I mean, if you're just being authentic and vulnerable, that's what's important. And there's nothing uh, amateur about being authentic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, thank you. And I, you know, if if I hadn't, if I didn't have the tools of the steps, if I didn't, if I hadn't had the program to teach me the coping skills that I needed and ways to inventory my life and my fears and resentments and my behavior. I didn't write this book for 25 years because I wasn't ready to. I mean, I had, and when I did sit down to write it, I thought, okay, I've got this. I have processes. I've analyzed this. I've looked at it from every angle. I have forgiven where I need to forgive. I have taken accountability. You know, I've been accountable where I need to be accountable. And actually in the, in the first 18 months when I wrote the rough draft, I discovered I still had some unprocessed stuff in there. I was still bitter about some things. I was still in denial about some things, you know, but there were small things. Um, but once I got it all out, I felt free. I felt like a weight had been lifted and, um, and, uh, yeah, I felt like I could let him go more with love. I mean, I'd always let him go with love, but I felt like I really let him go with love in the I think that speaks to the fact that this is an ongoing process. It's a lifestyle choice. We're gonna we're gonna deal with these things, right? We'll inventory them. We'll work through them. We'll move on from them. Those feelings, those traumas, those experiences are gonna crop back up, and then now it's on us to use the tools in our tool belt. I know when you were talking about the breakup and the pain of that, it's like when your identity. You had said that their identity is wrapped up. It's created now in this person, in this relationship. Um, I learned in therapy that the feeling of losing one's identity is one of the most traumatic experiences a human being can go through. Yes. And and it very much, as you read through your relationship arc with Joe, that, 
so much of your identity was wrapped up in that relationship and the success of that relationship made you feel on top of the world and the uh, failures of that relationship um, uh, sent you into quite the spiral even before it went it was over there was you know these valleys that the relationship went through and that sent you into you know and i can identify with that in a in a very intimate way because it's exactly how i had relationships right my identity was absolutely wrapped up a little bit of codependency eh? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. But you know, it's, it's, your, it's your higher power, right? The, the relationship. And it, it's so true what you said. Whatever, wherever your identity is too invested, once if it gets threatened in some way, you know, if somebody like um, I, I work, uh, like as a stripper, if anyone ever suggested I was not sexy or not a sexual being in any way, that's such a part of my identity. I would find myself really bristling. And whenever mm-hmm. I find myself bristling, automatically like that. I'm like, oh, this is something I need to inventory. What's being threatened? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's usually some... Start applying program to it, yep. You know what's funny is yeah. the same damn feeling that used to make me think like, fuck this, I need a drink or fuck this, I need a... Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, like uh, now I I have the same feeling, but I recognize that is like, I need to take action. I need to apply program yeah. to this yeah. in totally. order. Yep, 100%. Totally. Yeah. Yes, there was there was a lot of codependency in my previous relationships. Absolutely. And, you know, I had to address that in recovery. Before we go there, Kristen, uh, one of, I think, the most uh, uh, brutally honest pieces of the book was when you detailed your experience in Las Vegas after the... Uh, the the final end to your relationship with Joe or even as it was really just sort of finalizing and then what how your disease progressed can you talk about that a little bit just before you start though I I gotta say that once that kind of portion started of the book I was listening at work, working on my drill press, and then I listened in the car afterward. Anyway, I ended up getting a merit badge on Audible that was like a marathoner because I listened for like over six hours (laughs) in a row. I couldn't stop listening to that because, I mean, just I'll let you tell what what happened, but, man, it was – it was like God. And again, one of the parts of the book where I yeah. am just in awe of the way you were able to uh, uh, sequence that out. And like she's telling my story. Yeah. Man. Oh, my God. Oh, my. Kristen, <laughs> really well done. Give the listeners a taste of you know what you endured during that time. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. It's funny too because my editor, she's when she didn't, um, her last bits of advice when I turned to the manuscript, you know, she said, "You don't have to do this, but I think this chapter—it's the one that you're, you guys are talking about." Um, she said it doesn't read exactly the same as the others, and I don't know exactly why, but I think it's—I don't feel as in the moment 
And I, and I, I took it back and I thought, well, let me look at it. And then I realized, you know, that was really the most traumatic couple of years of my life. It was, a, it was almost two year period and I was suicidal. And I, um, there's a part of my brain that won't open up. So I don't have to feel cause it, it was so dark. Right. So I, I remember it intellectually and I wrote some of it intellectually. This is what happened. Um, but I, I didn't go through the waves of um, re-experiencing in that particular chapter because my brain wouldn't let me, mm. which I think, which I'm very grateful for actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm glad I remembered as much as I did. I'm, and I'm probably glad I forgot the things that I did. <laughs> but that's uh, well, so, yeah, when, how we protect ourselves. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We can only handle so much right now. Yeah. It'll come to you later. I mean, you yeah. have to deal with that at some point, you know, yeah. more will be revealed. Yeah, it's a process. Yeah. Um, so I, so when Joe and I, when when Joe and I broke up for the final time, um, it was over the phone, and I just sort of, you know, emotionally, I just, I'm sure he could hear that I was just sort of broken. I was sobbing, and he said, all of a sudden, he just said, "I'll come see you. I'll come say goodbye in person." And there was this very, there was this real tender, sweet sweetness to to it i mean he he um we were so cold with he was so cold with me at that point and then all of a sudden and so he came and saw me one last time and of course i'm holding out hope um all day but i was just i mean i look back now and i just think it was so sweet of him to come it must have been really hard for him knowing that i was holding out hope and at the end of the day he got in the cab and he went home you know he said there's it's that's it it's it's over for good and in that moment i could not handle the pain of that it, which, it was just like I was being sucked into outer space. And my brain did the only thing it could do, which was just tr- scramble to come up with a solution, a safety net, something to protect me from, the, from this tsunami of pain that was just washing over my brain. And, my, and, and what it came up with was, well, we'll just, just kill yourself and then everything will be okay. And that gave me enough breathing room to get the you know 100 feet to my apartment door and walk inside and make, remain upright and that was that i just decided i'm going to kill myself and so i spent the next 22 months drinking as much as i could every single day i thought i'm going to kill myself um by drink myself to death nicholas cage style yeah it was that movie um leaving las vegas uh it's one of my favorite movies so i can't watch it because just between the two of those characters i mean i so got who he was in that movie it was exactly what i was doing and vegas is a great place to do it you get you know uh whereas in texas you know there are the laws about buying liquor it's 24 7 available in vegas so um you know, I, I, I started physically deteriorating um, fairly quickly. I was, I, you know, I maintained well enough to strip and keep a roof over my head, but um, I was passing out at work uh, and I was barely making enough to get by. And I had a friend who, and I had, who um, I sort of had this agreement that I'd be his girlfriend and he would take care of me. Like he would make sure that um, uh, I didn't drive drunk uh, any more than he could help, uh, help me drive drunk. And um uh, he was there when I would take a shower. I was afraid I was going to slip in the shower, but I, he was, he was there in my life to kind of keep me out of jails and hospitals while I drank myself to death as quickly as I could. And, um, it, you know, it got to the point where I was in and out of the hospital. I had, um, alcohol poisoning a couple of times. I was, um, uh, becoming so ill every morning. I was, I, I would vomit up bile a few times every morning. The, 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 
I was having uh, morning terrors that were, it's very hard to describe, but for about an hour every morning, I was in a, this very delusional state where I was convinced I was about to be stabbed to death. Like I was like, like, like someone was coming to kill me. And I was in that high panic, high adrenaline moment just before somebody takes a knife to stab you. And um, even though I knew it was a delusion, it happened every morning. And, and um, in your fight or flight response, you know, it's, yeah. you're still experiencing that. Yeah, I, I think that's why my I, I started experiencing this weird fear of heights where even just the idea of being, I would just close my eyes and think of being on the stratosphere and I'd start to get ill um, because I just felt so unmoored and like there was no safety net. I had no connection to um, spirituality. I had, I believed in God actually. Um, I never didn't believe that there wasn't something, but I was convinced that whatever it was had just given up on me. So I was all alone in the universe. And, um, uh, I was bloated. I was, um, uh, even the people at the Seven Eleven where I lived and got my money orders for rent thought I was going to die. I mean, this reckless uh, abandon that you were, um, uh, pursuing was so stark in terms of the physical deterioration that you did such a wonderful job illuminating mm. because it really made it very, very, very uh, present in terms of uh, the... Um, the immediacy of your potential demise really ultimately and it was like groundhog day at the very end <laughs> you know you were waking up and you were your body was going through these this tremendous uh amount of um uh, pain because of the abuse that it, uh, that was being inflicted upon it and um uh, so so tell us and our listeners you know how did how did you get out of it what was that moment where was that moment where i mean you're you're nearly a dead woman walking yeah and 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 I got to believe the clerk at 7-Eleven is thinking to themselves, I'm not going to see this woman one at one time. She's just going to stop coming in because she ain't going to be, she ain't going to wake up one day. Right. Like, yeah. right. That kind of sad, grim reality. Well, didn't they actually, there was that part where you went to the store and they were like, Oh, you're alive. Cause <laughs> they hadn't seen her for a while. And they were like, we thought for sure you, Right. So, so where's that? What? Tell us about that moment. Well, so what happened was this would have been, um, it was April of 97 and it had been 22 months since um, Joe had come to say goodbye. And I, um, I woke up in this state. I was at my um, friend, boyfriend, um, Chuck's house. And uh it, I woke up in that usual state of pain, except it was like multiplied to an intensity that I'd never known was possible. Like I almost felt like every single cell in my body from my hair to my toenails was just an excruciating agony screaming to the universe. I hadn't, I, and I remember I, 
clearly remember thinking, I wish I could describe this. I don't have words. Nobody will ever understand what this is like because I don't have words to describe the, the depth of this physical pain. And um, I guess that there are probably other people out there because it was, you know, it was alcohol poisoning, surely. Um, but I was stuck there in bed alone um, all day. Just, I mean, I was, I was uh, vomiting up bile repeatedly for a while. I couldn't speak. I couldn't really move. I could kind of roll my body over um, to throw up into the bin. But um, that whole time, hours were going by, and I was... I believe now sort of being put in a position to make a choice because that was my, you know, fatal flaw. I, I couldn't make a choice. I would just, I would just let, um, I, I would let Joe and his career decide how my life was going to be for the, you know, what, who I was going to be and how I would be defined instead of just, you know, um, making decisions and taking action. I was just letting life lead me around by the nose. I'm just going to keep drinking. Even, even my suicide the the method I chose was not like uh, a not like this firm decision to get a gun or get some pills. It was like I just keep on doing what I'm doing and let you know let alcoholism lead me to the grave. Like I was, and uh, so there I was, and I was stuck because I couldn't get up and get some more. There was none in the house, and um, so I just had to wait to die and wait and see what would happen. Of course, my mind was working perfectly and all my mind could do was roll around what had gotten me here mm -hmm. and what am I going to do if I don't die? Yeah. You know, and um, I had hours to think about it because this probably went on from like 8 a.m. to like 1 p.m. or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a part of me, I think, that um, I don't know what – I wonder, I've wondered about this a lot over the last 25 years. What was it that made me finally make that decision? And I think it, there might have been a lot of factors. I think one of them was that there was a time in my life when I was a baby and a, or a, a very young that um, I did feel loved, you know? I, I, and I think that that little sliver of a sense of value, that I might have some value, that I might be lovable, um, I think that it, it awakened or something yeah. um, because some people don't make it. Some people do off themselves. They, they do, you know, yeah. and um, I decided if I live, I'm going to try to get sober. Um, I did not want to, and I didn't want to for, um, you know, I, I knew it was the right thing to do was to try to live and to get sober. Um, I did it grudgingly. But again, like I told you, I mean, I, I always believed that there was a higher power. If I didn't, I don't know if I'd be here today. If I didn't have my father um, and those memories of him delighting in me and uh, being happy to see me at the end of the day and being just very affectionate and, and, and very loving, he might, you know, um, to offset sort of the feeling I got from my mom, which was that I was a burden, that I, whatever. Um, I think that that was a factor. And so, um, for whatever reason, I decided to give it a, to give it a shot. And, uh, shortly thereafter, my, um, my pulse, which I had been checking throughout the day, dropped under 200 beats per minute for the first time since I woke up. And that's when I knew I was going to live. Hmm. And I called, um, this woman that I had used to party with and she was a stripper, but she had been sober for a couple of years and she had always said, you know, I'm saving you a seat if you ever want to Mm. it's sober and That's she was awesome. out of town but she told me where to go to a meeting and um it took me a few days to get there because i i mean I, I i uh i i was in pretty bad shape 
I'd lost 15 pounds that one day, um, probably from de partly dehydration. But anyway, um, I went to a meeting and uh, I didn't understand what the hell they were talking about, what it had to do with sobriety. I'm dying here. You guys are talking about gratitude and humility. What does this have to do with them? <laughs> I, was, I really, I hated everyone in there. Right. Me too. Totally. Uh, Me too. But, you know, I, but I kept going back trying to figure it out. I had nowhere else to go for one right. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is I called my mom. She, you know, she was the first call I made. I wasn't even able to get up and walk around yet. Um, I couldn't even hold the phone or dial the phone, but I had been sober for 24 hours and it was the first 24 hours I had been sober in many years. And, um, wow. and I had Chuck call my mom so I could croak. <laughs> I, I don't know how strong my voice was, but I told her and, um, and she said something supportive. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> it was cautiously supportive, but <laughs> it was enough. You know, yeah. I thought I can make an, if I'd make another 24 hours, I can call her back. Right. And uh, so that was that was a big deal to me. That was a part of it. It was the first sort of positive, you know. I think when you make a big change like that, whatever it is, quitting smoking, quitting drinking, quitting an abusive relationship, if you have, um, if you can remember the negative while also experiencing something positive about making that change, between those two things, um, yeah. they give you a couple things to hold on to, and um, and so uh, things started getting better for me pretty quickly. My health, um, my my. Um, I mean, I did a lot of damage. It took many years, and I'm still there. Are part there are things that are, that will never work the, the same way again. But um, I started feeling better within a few days, and I was back to dancing in eight. I think eight days. And you really start to uh, uh, get well in a lot of different ways. And one of the greatest moments I really, really liked about this. Your it, it, uh, the the Kristen Casey comeback story as you're uh, as you're mounting your comeback, which is the greatest part of any story. Let's be honest, uh, and yours does not disappoint. Is your conversation with the super right, and hit the 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 comment made about you know uh, uh and maybe you could take us through that a little bit because that it, 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 a bit of a defining moment in terms of you know um you know a how bad it probably really got and you know uh that people are uh, uh, there was there was this external validation that um uh, you're coming back and you're looking good yeah um my leasing manager, you know, I, I had lived there for three and a half years, and I think we'd had a couple different leasing managers. I think, I think this is a quote you're talking about. Um, but this guy was, I mean, he was really good. He was professional. But, you know, I was a hardcore drunk. And so um, every now and then there was a lot of noise coming from my apartment, I, or I was stumbling through the parking lot. I remember I had a um, I actually forgot this until after I wrote the book. It just uh, this memory from 25 years ago came to me. I remember screaming at my mailman, which is probably how the post office ended up getting noticed that I had deceased. I think I this this I had ye been yelling at my mailman. I think he told them I was deceased, so I'd stop getting my mail as a way to get back at me. But um, uh, yeah. So I, you know, my leasing manager had not tried to throw me out or anything, but my rent was forever late. And again, I was bloated. I, you know, I looked like hell. Um, and so I'd been sober, I guess, maybe a few weeks. 
and um, I felt a lot different. I looked a lot different. I was actually wearing a very um, flowery sundress, which is completely different from, I lived in t-shirts and sweatpants. And, you know, as an alcoholic, my, I would just, everything, anything tighter made me uncomfortable. Um, so I looked like I was in my pajamas all the time. So I go in there with my hair done. Um, I probably had some, a little makeup on in this flowery sundress. And I just give him my money orders and I turn to go, not thinking. And he did like a double take and he goes, I went by Christy back then. And he goes, Christy? Like he was completely, and he was like checking my signature. And then he catches up with me at the door and he goes, what happened to you? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, don't take this the wrong way, but you look amazing. Right. I just, it was, yeah, it, I did not take it the wrong way. I really, it just, I, I, I still get chills thinking about it. I mean, it just said everything, you know, because um, like we were talking about earlier that you're in that delusion where you think what you're doing is normal. Right. And, and at worst, you're making an ass out of yourself once in a while, but it's not that big a deal. And the truth is like people at the 7-Eleven, my leasing manager, my whole family, but for, you know, for a long time, all my friends had just been worried sick. The total strangers would look at me on the street and think I was, you know, customers um, at the strip club would, um, say things to other dancers like is that girl going to be okay um and you just don't see it until you get sober and uh it was very very even once you are sober right like in the in the rooms we don't really see how well we're progressing or 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 how good we're doing uh we need community for that you know for people to reflect back to us what what we're doing um and that's if it's good or bad, you know, maybe call us on our shit, you know, yeah. maybe give us some props when we're being too hard on ourselves and we're not giving ourselves any grace, you know, and understanding that we need, it's okay for it to take time and be a process and we're going to make mistakes along the way. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I commend you for, for sharing this story and, and for turning your life around, man, it's a miracle. And yeah. Speaking of turnarounds, yeah. let's uh, talk about what it's like now. What What is life like for Kristen Casey today? Well, it is much better, I will say. Um, uh, it, and I, I did finally become uh, a published author, and so that's been a that's been an amazing experience. I, I did start. I, I started getting um, pieces published. Not long after I started submitting, honestly. I mean, it took a long time for me to get to the place where I would um, uh, uh, even just even just go ahead and throw myself into writing. But I moved back to Austin. Like, the first thing that happened was that I started going to A regularly, and I, um, I got an amazing sponsor. And, you know, I really lucked out in this department. I found someone who taught me the steps as they are laid out in the big book. Nothing more, nothing less. And, you know... All the women in my sponsorship Love tree are just hardcore big book thumpers, and 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 so a year and a half later, um, you know, I was well on my way, and I moved back to Austin, and I um, I got into real estate, and I just I I got threw myself into physical fitness, but I was um I went to meetings daily, and I sponsored other women, and it's that like you said, you know, I wasn't used to having the tribes that I was around were people who were using like me. Mm. I, I wasn't used to allowing, um, I was used to letting other people tell me how to feel about myself, but I wasn't used to like, um, uh, allowing myself to, to, um, allowing others to help me 
see myself with better clarity in a, this supportive environment and, um, and just being vulnerable in that way and saying, I'm a mess or, or I'm not all together or I need help or I'm confused and having this, this um, really supportive tribe. I'd never had a tribe. I mean, the ones that I'd had were very destructive, you know, like the, um, you know, drug addicts basically. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it was a really big part of my life. And um, I, I was someone who needed coping skills, like starting from scratch. And so, um, you know, I, I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, and when I got into real estate, even though that wasn't the field that I really, I wanted to be a writer, but the truth is I had a lot to learn about just being a dependable person, being um, reliable, being disciplined, you know, all these things that you learn in your late teens and twenties, I was learning in my thirties. Right. And then, you know, and then I had the secondary struggle that, you know, I put off for a little bit because I just wasn't ready, but being able to have relationships, and I mean friendships, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, much less romantic relationships, intimacy and attunement. And really, um, that's a vulnerable place to be because especially friendships with other women, that was one. Of, it was easy to have sex. I mean, it, it wasn't at first, but um, but that wasn't, you know, once you're sober, some of the things that were fulfilling, uh, you know, I wanted genuine intimacy it was the isolation that i felt as a kid that led me to the drugs and alcohol to begin with so once i started you know feeling confident in myself as a dependable person a real estate agent and then i started throwing myself into writing and austin such a supportive environment for artists that i mean i can't even tell you all the friends i made here um were musicians and photographers and songwriters and writers and poets and um you know artists of some type and so um I had my my twelve step groups, and and I had a few of them. You know, I I I found Al-Anon to be tremendously helpful at some point. I went to Debtors Anonymous, um, so uh, I had, uh, and then I had my, um, my artistic tribe, and then I eventually, through a lot of trial and error, figured out how to um, be authentic in a relationship and. Um, and uh, experienced genuine emotional intimacy with female friends and with male partners. And it was, a, it was a very long journey for me, I'll be honest. I mean, I was very, very depressed and I had a lot of um, uh, secondary addictions. Like I, I had an eating disorder, I was a workaholic, I was a workoutaholic. Um, I, I, did, I had some more physical injuries because I was working out too hard and too much. So a lot of that stuff, but I mean, it's a journey. And um, I would say by the time I had 10 years sobriety, I was, I, I was, absolutely sure I was that suicide would have been a bad decision <laughs> but I mean I was pretty sure at, eight, at year four or five <laughs> but by 10 I was certain and then you know the next year and it's something that you said I want to circle back to it, we don't see our progress we really don't um I have a tendency toward depression and I'm and I um, I'm hard on myself and I I got somewhere in my head as a child that you know, if you work hard enough, you can make your life perfect and then you coast. And that's not how it works. Hell no. So, you know, I, I would always, I always have something to complain about. I always have something that's not right. You know, no matter how good things get or how much better I get, I, it's not, I'm never satisfied. And someone told me once, where were you? They said, just stop. Where were you two years ago? Where were you six months ago? And if I do that, every time I have a, you know, I find myself in that loop. Just yep. think about where you were six months ago. Never fails. I am in a much better place. You're Just, immersed in gratitude instantly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's yeah. crazy. And, we need that. And those Kristen, reminders. I think it's so important that you talk about some of the other things that you dealt with in sobriety and in recovery as you're dealing with, you know, uh, um, unmanageable debts and your um, uh, eating disorder, which in and of itself can be a life and death kind of situation. And I know for a fact that so many of us, as we enter sobriety, then end up really getting into knockdown dragouts with other um, uh, addictions, substances, behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that recovery is absolutely a process, like you said, in a journey in and, and it, I find myself having to reckon with behaviors and with other things. Uh, I had to, I had to reckon my nicotine addiction. I had to, you know, reckon uh, porn. I had to reckon with, you know, a, a number of other addictions and, you know, sugar's next on the list, Dude, you know, you know, uh, good luck with that. right. Those, those things were never on your radar you know, and thanks to recovery. But yeah, it's easy for us to look at it like, oh, this is a problem, you know, and it is. But we wouldn't have thought it was a problem if we never started to improve our life. Absolutely not. You know, it's that that the, the alcohol was the first love, drugs second, right? <laughs> but once I cleared those away, it was clear that I, that I had other issues that I absolutely needed to address, you know? <laughs> um, and so um, uh, that's a, uh, that is a, uh, a process of a lifetime. Yeah. It is. And, you know, it, it can be very humbling, but at the same time, um, it, there's just an, an immense sense of gratitude that, it, and, you know, going to meetings sometimes, you, it, it, I'm reminded of where I was. And even sometimes having nothing to do with sobriety or recovery, um, you meet someone in life who's just maybe a, not an honest person or, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, and you're like, well, how am I ending up with this person in my life? And, you right. know, maybe they're a coworker or something. You're like, how am I, why am I having to deal with this person? And somebody told me once, everyone we meet is meant to uh, remind you who you are or who you are not. And I, I love yeah, that. yeah, I like that too. And so, um, I, you know, it's, I'm just very, no matter where I'm at, you know, be that thing about being a work in progress. It's just important to remember. And I, you know, I have this one life to do with whatever I can. And, um, it, it, that I, if, if I had, if you had asked me the day I got sober, where do you want to be in 22 years? I would have sold myself sh short for sure. Hardcore. Absolutely. I ain't yeah. even three years into this thing and I've had so many amazing things happen in my life, man. I just, wow. You know, and, but yeah, it's easy to get caught up in those kind of negative feelings sometimes, but you got to just always bring it back. Uh, you know, look at those baby steps. I think if I thought of any of the things that I've accomplished, I would have thought they were too big, too hard, yeah. too out of reach. Right. Yeah. But how is anything accomplished? one little step in front of another, in front of another, yeah. and then all of a sudden it leads to big results, you know? And yeah. at times we feel like we're getting nowhere. And then all of a sudden we look back and we're like, wow, you know? Yeah. Far. 
Yeah. I never would have thought that I would find joy in being of service. I mean, I honestly thought, I, even when I was really in my pink cloud in my first or second year of sobriety, I thought I'm going to do an 11 and a half of these steps. <laughs> service sounds really like an inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> helping others. I'm not going to have time for that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I so the closest I've been to be to the closest I've felt to being high has been I'm the first time I took someone through her 12 step, I felt almost high. I bet. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm still waiting to get yeah. that that one sponsee that works all the way through the steps. Oh, uh, yeah, it takes a while. Takes a while. <laughs> you know, I, right, well, you know what? We're responsible, right, for carrying the message, not yep. the addict or the alcoholic. Just the effort, right? not the But alcohol. here's the deal. Uh, speaking of <laughs> helping people, you helped a lot of people with this book for sure. Like, yeah. I got to tell you, uh, uh, everybody in Way Out podcast land. land. <laughs> run don't walk to your nearest bookstore they still have bookstores i was gonna say to charlie's house and ask right, if you can borrow right, it because he already it, read it right, it's right here right um, <laughs> so if you're in if you're lucky enough to be able to run or walk to a bookstore do that yeah right, uh, right. if not head over to amazon.com mm. uh uh and get Rock monster, my life with Joe Walsh, and you'll realize very quickly that although uh, Joe Walsh is the hook, uh, the meat of this thing is Kristen Casey, and it's a wonderful uh, story that uh, you will see yourself in Kristen's story. You will you will see yourself in Kristen's story. Kristen, thank you so much for the time. Yeah. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you guys so much. It's been a great pleasure. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank you for the wonderful you things too. you said about myself. I, I want to say thank you too. You know, I I feel really uh, blessed to be able to be a part of this show in general. It's been a great blessing to me and my recovery to be a part of this podcast and to be able to read a story like yours that I resonated with on so many levels with that slow self-destruction, which is ironic, isn't it? Why do we pick a, because it's really because we're cowards. Like I can't put a bullet in my head. So I'm just going to like shoot so much to that was my, my choice. I'm going to shoot as much dope as I can every day. And you know, whatever. Suicide on the installment. Plan. It's so dumb. <laughs> it's like we drive ourselves to madness and it's probably the most horrifying way to fucking go. But anyway, yeah. uh, that being said, like I, I really identified with your story. I can appreciate so much everything that was in there, man. And I, I'm just happy that I was able to be a part of this interview and to meet you face to face. People aren't going to see your face or my face, but <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> I am. I'm. I'm glad. To, I, I'm so glad I got to see yours, and I'm glad you were here too. I wasn't. I wasn't sure you were going to be. So that's awesome. That means the world to me. What you said. Thank you. That's Thank you, really. Kristen, so much. Take you care. bet. Bye, guys. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, 
Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.